0: Hello and welcome to Floods of Justice. This week we are starting things off a little bit differently. The tone of this podcast is, is a little different. So I wanted to uh, play a piece that was produced by Red Letter Christians. And that'll kind of set the stage for what we're going to talk about today.
1: Black people are so tired.
2: Street. He was the rose that grew out of the concrete. The same ground where his body
1: lay. We can't go jogging like rose petals. We can't relax in the comfort Why of our own homes. We can't ask for help. After being in a car crash. We can't have a cell phone. We can't leave a party to get to safety. We can't play loud music. We can't sell CDs.
2: We can't sleep.
1: We can't walk from the corner store. We can't play cops and robbers. We can't go to church. We can't walk home with Skittles. We can't hold a hairbrush while leaving our own bachelor party.
2: We
1: can't party on New Year's
2: Eve.
1: We can't get a normal traffic ticket. We can't lawfully carry a weapon. We can't break down on a public road with car problems. We can't shop at Walmart. We can't have a disabled vehicle. We can't read a book in our own car. We can't be a ten year old walking with our Grandfather, the ground,
2: they call this one Sandra Bland.
1: We can't
2: ask a cop a question roses, with on the We
1: can't cash our woman, check in peace. Oh, we can't wonder, take out our wallet can Beautiful
2: and special and precious you were. We can't Somebody breathe. told me that if only, if only you we would let her decide. Can't you would still be
1: alive. Live. But I'm asking you to
2: look at all this road. We
1: can't even peacefully protest. On. These types of injustices.
2: Sandy Hook. I'm you to look all We're tired. With the on the
1: ground.
2: Tired we of,
1: story of making hashtags. In our books so while we tired all these of trying to convince you that our black lives matter. The ground.
2: I'm asking you to look at Tired of dying. Tired
1: of explaining I'm this you to yet another
0: look at
1: generation. Roses.
0: If you have not seen that video that was produced, this was just the audio from that. Each one of those examples, uh, there is a real person behind each one of those, uh, a real life, an African-American life that was lost. And uh, we're here this morning to to talk about this. We have a special guest with us that we are, are thrilled that she would join us um, to be a part of this conversation. Um but as you can see, the, the tone is a little bit different um, in this podcast today. So we want to honor that and respect that, um, but we really want to to dig deep into this conversation and 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 make some much overdue progress. Uh, so welcome, Pastor Kevin.
3: Hey, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. How are you? I'm good. This is what, three weeks in a row back at the coffee house? Yes, <laughs> indeed. So indeed. Uh, it looks like business is slowly picking back up. Yep. Uh, with the weather outside hopefully there won't be any road construction behind us i know so, so uh looks a little rainy here in uh, in franklin so uh, but anyway yeah it's uh good to be here and that's uh it's really funny i woke up early this morning and i got on my phone and and someone had already tweeted to me that that video oh really uh, yeah of it and um and so i'd watched it and then you you tweet you texted me about wanting to use it and um and it really is it really is uh a thought-provoking, very somber video, especially if you watch it and see the pictures uh, behind uh, the narration and music. I can't remember, I looked this morning, but I've already forgotten, I can't remember who sung, who was singing that song, but Lisa Sharon Harper was narrating it, and uh, some of our listeners may know, uh, may know who that is, she's an author and a speaker, and um, and really the poem that she read, I'd, I'd seen, I think one day last week, somebody had sent it to me, uh, that, and I can't remember who had written that, but. Appreciate Shane Claiborne and Red Letter Christians um, uh, posting that, producing it, and posting it. I think it's really important for us uh, to hear and to put uh, and to put those uh, images and and the people behind that because it is uh, um, we're just in a just an interesting time in history. I was sharing yesterday just a little bit in our church service. You know that I've been trying to uh, build bridges and work on racial reconciliation for well over 20 years now. And um, in a lot of ways, I feel like I don't know anything uh, after this because it just doesn't seem like it's gotten any better um, over the the years. And if anything, uh, maybe a little bit worse. Maybe if you want to try to find the bright spot, maybe because so many people are becoming aware and there is a big voice, like, for example, with Aubrey, you know, uh, that happened a few months ago and it was Mm -hmm. being swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. Uh, But finally somebody posted the video and, and really that, Public outcry, I think, uh, forced um, the authorities to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, but yet, how many times do those things happen and and no one films it, no one says anything. And so, if you want to find a bright spot, maybe the angst that we're all feeling is a good sign that we're recognizing it more and more. But yet, at the same time, why didn't we recognize it years ago? You know, why you know, why why wasn't it uh, Tamir Rice or Eric Gardner? Why wasn't that the end of it? Why does it keep Why does it keep uh, happening? Uh, But anyway, so we have a special guest, and I really want her to share. Uh, A good friend of mine, Ray Boyd Sanchez, we've known each other for quite a while. We've worked together on uh, many different projects. He's been in the nonprofit world uh, for a long time. Uh, She's an expert on poverty. She leads uh, (laughs) uh, seminars and and discussions on that. And we were talking on the phone, actually, um, I think it was Thursday or Friday. I mean, it was late last week we were talking about something else that we were working on together. And then she stopped and said, I need to ask you something else. And she started asking me questions of my own feelings about this. And what was really interesting is one of her first phrases was, you know, as a black person, I'm just so tired. Mm -hmm. And then that song comes out or that video, and that's the title of the video is Black People Are Tired. And uh, she expressed that beautifully. And she started talking, and it was <clears throat> you know, a phone call, and I was like, wait, we need to get together, let's talk about it um, live and uh, uh, on our podcast. So uh, so welcome, Ray. Just uh, before we get started, just quickly give us just a little background. Where are you from? How long have you been in Franklin? What do you do? How many kids you got? And all that kind of good stuff.
4: <laughs> oh, I love that rundown. I'm originally from Ohio, but I have officially been in Tennessee <clears throat> longer than I was in Ohio. And so I call uh, Franklin here home. I've been in Franklin in about 15, 17 years or so. I have six children with my beautiful husband. And um, we are just here in Franklin, like everyone else, um, living the dream that we had for our lives to to grow up, be productive citizens, and kind of just go through life and try to find... Happiness in some points, contentment at others, and mainly love for everyone. Um, and so, I am here. But you know, I got to first say, um, I do not speak for all Black people. There are going to be some people who um, do dis- disagree with me, or whether you agree with me or not, that is the first thing that you have to understand. And, dear white people, you are going to have the one black friend that says, oh, yeah, I'm not tired. I don't feel that way. So do not let that dismiss you. But understand that this is just a general feeling of a a group of people who are literally tired um, in every sense of that word. Um, There was a couple of things that struck me. Uh, when she was reading through uh, the folks who have uh, passed away in that terrible manner. Um, But one of them was, we can't celebrate New Year's Eve. And that struck me as odd, because historically, New Year's Eve was hiring day for the slaves. And it was a very, very um, hard day. The day before... New Year's Eve, many of the slaves would be um, praying and in service and on their knees that the following day their masters wouldn't sell them and split their families apart. And so it struck me as um, 175 years later or whatever, um, that person was celebrating New Year's Eve. They were going out trying to have a good time in a country where – that historical beginning was so harsh and terrible. And so um, those contrasts come into our lives all the time as colored people. And I know generally we don't use the word colored, but I I mean to include black, brown people who have pigment to their skin. Because even though um, African Americans, um, I feel disproportionately are singled out. I think when I talk to most people who have any type of melanin in their skin, they understand um, the concerns that black people have. So I just, when I called the other day, it had been heavy on my heart to listen to yet another young young man being gunned down. And it wasn't that... Um, He was gunned down. It was more that the conversation behind the shooting still was very unproductive. There was still everyone blaming someone for that incident instead of the incident just being what it was. And it was just a flat-out murder. That's it can't call it anything else It doesn't matter what the motives were mm-hmm. um they would stand trial to me in our country for the motive and for what uh level of killing it was that's for the courts to decide but the idea of was it uh, a, a murder or not I think that there really just is no question about that and so uh the conversations around it um when I, I posted some things on Facebook, and one of the first comments was, "Well, you know, it, everything is not about race, and <laughs> that we shouldn't keep making things about race because that is unproductive." However, um, this, and as it will go on and be shown, there there are lots of things in the situation. That perfectly well tell you that it was decidedly the cutter, color of his skin that made him a target. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that they hate all black people? Does that mean? I don't necessarily think that. I, I have very conservative views, but, but was he a target because of his race? Absolutely. There just isn't a question about that to me. And so I am tired of having that conversation. I think that as a country, we just have to acknowledge that that's the issue that we currently have. Um, And if we do not have a dialogue about it, the tired and the weary usually turn into people who have nothing to lose. And that is not a group of people that you would like to live in a country with. You don't want to live in a country where the bottom half of your population is hopeless, and have nothing to live for. Um, so, uh, you know, I often make the joke about Marie Antoinette. Like, that was her mistake. She she forgot that there were more of them <laughs> than her and her people inside of that um, palace. And so, we've got to just understand that I am not... I, this is that Those are not aggressive words. Those are historical words. If we follow the history of... When people get tired, what happens? There is no good that can come of that. So dialogue, to me, is our best offense. We just need to talk about it. And so that's the reason why I'm like, sure, I'll talk about it (laughs) because I'm tired. I'm tired of talking about it. now we have to put some things into place that um, acknowledge the feelings of the human beings
3: that are being... um, I think, dehumanize daily. Yeah, you know, I, I was I, I received a little bit of criticism because I didn't say anything about mod case um, sooner. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, and, and so because there was all kinds of stuff being put out on Facebook, and I was reading them. But the thought that came to my mind as I was seeing all this is like, okay, what are you going to do about it? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, here we go again, putting all this up on Facebook or on social media uh, talking about how horrible it is, but okay, what are we going to do about it? We keep doing this, you know, but yet okay, we need to do something else besides just just rant about it on uh, on Facebook. We need to organize we need to um, you know <clears throat> do something you know protest is the voice of the of the marginalized um, and uh, and like you said the the longer this goes on, you know people who are tired will eventually you know they'll act out and um and that can be productive. Sometimes it's unproductive, but that can be productive. But, but you know, what what can or do you have any ideas? Okay, what can we do about it? I mean, we need to talk about it, but what's something tangible that we need to do um, besides just, you know, sit down on social media or have a podcast about it? You know, what what is something tangible that we can do to, uh, um, and I'm asking that for people in general, but also as white people, what what can we do? Uh, to try to start making a headway on this. Because like I said, you know, 25 years doing this, and it's like it's not any better than it was, um, you know, in the early 1990s when when I got involved in Empty Hands Fellowship and really uh, started to try to make a difference and help build bridges. And I listened for a long time without saying a word. I listened to my minority brothers and sisters trying to hear, trying to empathize, trying to put myself in their position um, and then have tried to voice some things since then, but um, uh, but what, if anything, can we do to say, look, this is enough. Enough is enough.
4: Well, I think the very first thing is to prosecute the persecutors of this particular crime in a way that it is an example. Just like it's, like examples are set all across um, the America every day, trying to get people to uh, come under the authority of our laws that we have here in America but I think you've got to take it a step further too you've then got to go into that part of the world um, and say and I'm talking about Georgia specifically only because um, when the lawyer for the gentleman who filmed it uh, was talking to Cuomo he said well you know how it is down here in Georgia Um, you know things have been corrupt for a long time and you know it's just going to take some time but I think that that is to me when people other people other authorities need to step in and make sure that that doesn't happen because to me that's their job there it should not be the job of the uh en masse at large uh, groups to come in and say this is wrong to me once the authorities get a hold of it they should then swiftly carry out justice and, and let that serve as an idea of where we're headed. That would just be a great first step if you would say, yeah, they're not getting away with this. It was absolute murder. Just say what it is and move on. That is really the first step for that particular case to me is to really um, – say that there is going to be justice and, and show it and, and let it be delivered swiftly. Um, but I think in general uh, for, for, for white people in general, those of you who have an ear, you need to hear that this is the time where you cannot stay silent and your silence is, um, making you a part of the whole that to me damns mm-hmm. the race of people who have melanin in their skin. And you cannot say um, that you, because of your comfortable life that you're living, that, that you don't want to mess up your life. Because I tell you, if it comes to all out civil war, there are, those lines are going to be so blurred. Now I was telling You um, last week, I said we are not our ancestors. I want that to be an outcry. We are not our ancestors because we have a couple of things that they didn't have. We have the knowledge of good and evil in this in this particular land that we live in. We know what who the powers that be. We have information. We are educated. We have positions of power. It is not going to be the same thought process to liberate us that second time around and we're not going backwards. We're not, no one's going to return a slave. That's just not going to happen. So the good old days, they're gone for good. Let that go. And, and we have to now say, okay, we as Americans have to stand up for the things that we say we stand up for. Um, And so I was telling Kevin, too, like, Kevin, you know me. I am docile. I am the least person that um, is aggressive. Um, But I think that it is time that we all start saying, okay, enough is enough. We now have action is now going to have to speak louder than words. And um, I would like to tell the white people who think that they're comfortable, you are living a very comfortable lie. The truth is what you see on your television every day, that um, black and brown people are being annihilated. Mm-hmm. It is a war when the strategy is attrition. They want to subdue, I think, people of color at, to where that they are just so beaten down and worn down, and they have no more resources, and they're just done, and they want to give up and give in, but that is just not going to happen, it just isn't, and if it does, there's going to be a whole lot that goes on in between that time, so <laughs> I'm just saying, we, we're we done, we're done.
3: Yeah, you know, sometimes, some of the discussions I've been in, and some of the things I've done at the city level, uh, you know, city leaders and other people say, well, you know, that that's not Franklin, that's not Franklin, that can't happen in Franklin, um, which is really naive, um, just two two quick stories, <clears throat> one happened years ago, my next door neighbor was was an African American, he moved away, which is why I said was, he's not my neighbor anymore, but he's still a good friend, uh, very, very successful real estate uh, person, I mean, very successful, and uh, he came and knocked on my door one day, just physically shaken, just physically disturbed, and uh, he had been in, in West Haven, uh, neighborhood driving a client around looking at houses and a a truck got behind him and followed him around and when he came to a stop stop sign the truck ran around and blocked him and got out and was a white guy very very aggressive what are you doing in my neighborhood you don't belong here now this was you know maybe five years ago at the most I mean this is not but that could have that could have turned ugly quick Uh, you know the same type of scenario that you know because since he was driving slow. Um the, the white guy soon, he was casing the place, trying to find out, you know, who was home, who wasn't home, so he could break in, where well, this guy's a realtor. And so he came, and he was visibly shaken. We went back over there just to get the address. No, it didn't look like anyone was home. And I wrote a letter to the guy on behalf of my friend, and my friend, you know, was wanting to meet with him and talk, let's talk about this, let's work, let's talk about this, mm-hmm. you know. And then uh, we got no response. So I wrote an editorial in the newspaper about that, telling that story, but but that you know that was nowhere near what happened in, in Georgia, but it was headed down that it was headed down that path, mm-hmm. and then when the Trayvon John, and when Trayvon Martin case uh, came down and Zimmerman was found not guilty um, that Sunday at church, <clears throat> we had a long um, time of prayer and conversation about about that and and uh, you know lamenting and repenting of our of our white privilege and so forth and how we could let that happen. And after the service and over the next couple of days, I had a couple of African-American people in our church in the neighborhood uh, tell me how much they appreciated that because on that, on that Saturday night before Sunday in Franklin, Tennessee, there was a group of young African-American males whose intent was to go to downtown Franklin and burn the MFN city down. Mm-hmm. I mean, so they were so tired, so aggravated at what happened, if it wouldn't have been for some you know godly grandmothers really who who physically held them in their houses and wouldn't let them go outside um we could have been we could have been on the national news for something uh, not very pleasant so you know that's not to put fear in anybody who's listening but it's just to try to wake you up and say this is a this is a real thing and uh and if we don't come together and if we don't stop this and say look you've got to um you know you you got to stop profiling you got to stop assuming people of a certain race are up to no good or, or whatever it is and then if you go even to present day uh, my um, I was talking with Pastor Luis uh, the other day and the biggest percentage of people in Nashville who have COVID are Hispanic mm-hmm. because you know they don't have insurance mm-hmm. um, if they're not legal then they're not getting the stimulus check so they're having to go to work every day put themselves out there um, and because they have to they have they have to they have no choice and so a large number of them um, in fact because pastor Luis was telling me of one of his former church members who uh, an older lady died and it was partially or if not entirely because of covid and when and when the mom died the daughter was so despondent she had a heart attack and died so in a family in a matter of a few short hours two people uh, die and it goes back to this minorities were not caring for them We're not you know, and, uh, um, but let me ask you this just to switch the subject and jump in here, Kevin. But um, when, when I was teaching sociology at Nashville State, and I know this is anecdotal, uh, but Nashville State had a large, you know, inner city population, mm-hmm. and it was almost 100% African-American males would tell me stories of uh, driving while black or being followed in malls, uh, you know, by, peop- by security guards because they thought they were going to steal something. Um, you know, and the, and some of the white kids in the class couldn't believe it, and they were saying, no, that's not race, that's not race. I'm like, well, what else, what else do you call it? And so it's been my experience that a lot of African-American parents have to have this talk with their kids. Mm-hmm. Have you had that talk with your kids? Oh, absolutely, and more so since the, the shooting. And the talk, for
4: those of you who basically don't know, we all in the African-American community call it the talk about has nothing to do with anything except telling your young black boy that he has different rules than everybody else and that if a police officer stops you, you are to put your hands on the steering wheel, make sure they are visible at all times. Do not make any sudden movements. Put your hands out the window if you have to. Um, Make sure that you are saying, yes, sir, notes are being respectful Do whatever they tell you to do. And um, so it's a talk where you just kind of have to put the fear of God in them to not do anything that would be misconstrued as aggressive if a police officer pulls them over. And it is very heartbreaking because... That then puts in the mind of the African-American boy that the police is the enemy. And so I have both sides. My dad is a police officer in Cincinnati, Ohio, and my brother is a detective. So I've always been for the boys in blue. And I understand that if it came down between a criminal and my dad, I would want my dad to come home. So there's always this double-edged sword of, I have to tell my son that there is this um, relationship between him and the police officer that he needs to mind if he ever gets pulled over. And by the time you get done with the conversation, they're so shaken by the conversation that long before they get pulled over, they're nervous. Yeah.
3: So... Um, well, here's the thing. I mean, I just had this thought while you were talking because I, I can remember a similar... Type conversation when I got my driver's license with my dad saying, "Look, you know, don't speed, but if you do get pulled over, here's what you do," and it was a lot of similar stuff. But I think the difference is it was it was you need to show respect to the police officer, whereas I think maybe in your conversation is this is really to save your life. Correct, correct. So it's not a sign of I'm just doing what's right. I'm going to respect my. I mean, my my I got pulled over not long after I had my license, and that one time that I think. I was in trouble, Correct, I, you know, fear of my life. I did, right. you know, I did what I thought I needed to do, but the thought of being shot never crossed my mind. It was, okay, you have to respect um, those who have authority over you, mm-hmm. um, you know. But but not everybody has that conversation in the white community with their kids. Uh, but, I, but again, in the in the African-American community, it seemed like there's always that conversation. And, again, in my own anecdotal experience, 100% of the African-American males uh, would tell me about um, being pulled over or being followed or being in the wrong neighborhood. And I, I would tell the story, and I know it was a different time, but I was, when I was in junior high school in Bellevue, which is you know, West Nashville, mm-hmm. um, one day over the summer, me and my friends were walking around. We were all junior high, so 13, 14, 15-year-olds, and we were walking around the neighborhood with, with BB guns, rifles, BB guns. And a police officer stopped us mm-hmm. and, um, and said, what are you guys shooting? And my friend said, anything that moves. And the police officers just laughed, you know. Looked, saw there were BB guns, and that was the end of it, you know. Now I don't, I don't know how much of that was that was the 1970s, mm-hmm, you know, or or how much of it was we were all middle class uh, white kids just walking down the street, but we all had rifles. But but I but I thought to my, but I have thought to myself since then what would have happened if it would have been in a different neighborhood, different colors, different color uh, skin, the same age kids up to nothing guilty, just walking around with BB guns, shooting trees, and, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, not whatever moves, but mm-hmm. just shooting stuff, and the police stopped, what would have happened, what would that have looked like, and I'm, a, I'm afraid of the answer, what that would have been like, mm-hmm. even in the late 1970s.
4: Right. Well, I think, uh, and even one of my most woke white friends said to me, um, can it just not be about slavery anymore, like, can we stop, like, slavery just happened so long ago, And uh, I just feel like people are underestimating um, the psychology behind becoming dehumanized. Um, When you didn't dehumanize an entire group of people for many, many, many years, not 10 or 12, but we're talking about hundreds of years, Yes, a campaign to dehumanize them, not just my grandmother told me that... Uh, they smell different or they have an extra bone in their leg. That's why they're so fast. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about considering them chattel in documentation and saying that they are worth pennies on the dollars for their lives. Um, this is a systematic um, uh, transatlantic way to dehumanize a group of human beings. And so the psychology even behind that has carried on hundreds of years later. And so I think some of that is in our DNA to um, look up and have to correct that. Um, Even this year, this last couple of years, they had to pass a law for – african-american women to be able to wear their hair the way it grows out of their head um, to work and not be discriminated against and not um, have to be fired because you're wanting to wear your hair the way it grows out of your head Um, those are all things that we are still fighting against and that didn't just happen i think that is as a result of the dehumanization of that of this group of people. And so when you uh, look at people and you're in the store and you walk past and you clutch your purse and you lock your door, if a young black guy walks past your window, you have to understand that part of that is um, unconscious bias that you're not even thinking of. It is things that on the nightly news. I have long, long suspected that the the stories that you choose to put on the news are not necessarily everything or a good representation even of the crimes that took place in that day. And so there's a large group of people who think because of the crimes that they've covered on the news, that's the crimes that happened all in that day. When the truth of the matter is... That is not the case. Um, People, humans, commit crimes. Humans commit crimes really proportionately for who they are. Um, The black-on-black crime idea, I always dispute this with my white friends. There is not a such thing. Uh, Humans kill humans who look like them when you have a concentrated group of humans in a certain area and they're killing each other, it is definitely going to appear that there's this conspiracy to kill you, to yourself, to annihilate yourself, but that's just not true. The psychology behind that is is if you're a human being, the likelihood of you, if you were going to kill somebody, kill someone who looks like you, is greater, much greater than the likelihood of you killing someone who doesn't look like you. That is the facts. So we have got to change. We have to have a paradigm shift in the way that we see people of color. And the only way that that's going to happen is we're going to have to have a campaign to do it.
3: Yeah, and the the word is racialized, uh, the sociological (laughs) term, that all of us have been racialized as far as it's part of our culture and we see things a certain way, and we would not, you know, we would not consider ourselves racist, but if that African-American person walks by us, we lock our doors. If it's a white person, we don't lock our doors. Um, that's, uh, and a lot of that may be at the subconscious level, but it's because we're, we've we been racialized. We've been taught to view, um, you know, this, you know, the the person of color is a suspect. The, the white person is the victim um, in almost all almost all cases and you know when when it comes like the death penalty which we're involved in uh, there's a race component to the death penalty but it's not necessarily the race of the killer it's the race of the victim and um and so if you're if you're a minority person and you kill a white girl then the odds of getting the death penalty are far greater than if it's a black person killing a black person or a white person killing a white person um you know but that in our society, and this goes back to Kill a Mockingbird, all kinds of, of, of literature that shows, uh, and the whole idea of the black guy being a criminal mm-hmm. was to protect the white, the white girl, basically, mm-hmm. you know, from that, as far as history goes. And mm-hmm. so that's just part of our racial context, and, and, and it is at the systemic level now, I think, for the most part. Now, it does seem like white supremacy or people who hold those views have been emboldened the last few years. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're and they're more willing to speak out. They're more willing um, to to speak out. But most people are going to say they're not racist. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, but it's hard to get them to see. Okay, you're not racist, but you've been racialized. Mm-hmm. Or okay, you're not racist, but you have to admit you, you have white privilege. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and 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 then you can start maybe uh, to have a, uh, to have a conversation. But Kevin, you've been quiet. Jump in here. No, this is, I, I enjoy listening here. I mean, something that's, there's a few things,
0: lots of things coming to mind. Um, but one of them, you know, in, in the midst of this COVID pandemic, you'll hear a lot of the, the conspiracy theory arguments and points of view will be dismissed as conspiracy theory. And, and in the past I've heard, you know, primarily from the, the white community, but there's there's a mix who will dismiss, you know, racism or your comment of saying, oh, but slavery is in the past. We need to, to let it go there's very real documentation of, of calculated evil in our country that has set out like written founding father documents mm-hmm. saying this is our plan to annihilate the Native Americans. This is our plan to enslave the African Americans. So it's not even a matter of opinion or somebody's imagining it or this is a conspiracy theory. So that that's something that just hits me between the eyes. And I go, how how are people, it seems like that, that level of education in itself could blow some people's minds open to go, you really aren't basing your opinion on, on fact at all. It's your comfortability to say, "Mm, well, I'm not comfortable with that reality. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to believe that there is no more racism, or I'm not comfortable with the fact that you live in this, this fear. So I'm going to say that's paranoia. You're living in paranoia, (laughs) you know, and I, and I saw this tweet the other day, um, from, from a doctor, who had gone to school, and she says, I remember back in medical school, I registered for a a class on the effects of stress, thinking it would be a cakewalk for a semester. Mm -hmm. She goes, and I spent the whole semester hearing from my professor about how stress affects the human body on a cellular level. Mm -hmm. And hearing you talk about the talk with your boys, and I look Mm -hmm. at people of color who get that talk and live in that level of fear their whole life, Mm -hmm. it affects everything. It affects their their health. It affects their view towards potential and hope and and it's and it's really something that, as as a white person, I don't think I can connect with. I don't think I can ever like uh, this was the thing driving here today. Going, how how do we as white people empathize, but not try and make it about me? You know what I'm saying? Do. How do you how do you? So, as an African American, what would you, what would you say to? to a, a white person who's wanting to be woke, wanting to mm-hmm. go, okay, I, I, I want to get this, I really do, and they genuinely do, but they're really at that beginning level of even understanding this reality, mm-hmm. and in their conversations, they may may start to say, oh, I totally understand what you say. Mm-hmm. and you're like, no, you don't.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it, that's one of the things that, that I don't know, I struggle with, because there's a part of me that says, um, I bet a lot of slaves taught their masters things that their masters didn't think they would be taught. I bet you they taught them a lot of humility. I bet you they taught them how to be a good servant. I bet you they taught them how to be, um, uh, I don't want to say fake, but, uh, but get through a situation when your feelings are not really being expressed well or evident at all. Um, and so, I think, to me, that leads us into the conversation about white fragility. And I th- I really feel like um, I would throw that question back to my white friends to say, how would you approach learning something in university that you didn't know? If you were going to go and take a course in the the, te- the professor was particularly difficult. So you had to go and research your own information. How would you go about researching it? And I will tell you why it's very difficult for African Americans to um, be instructive in that way, T- to actually say to you, this is something that has to be a paradigm shift that you just have to get based upon experience because I think our, the way we've received it is experiential. We we have all of these experiences. We don't start out saying, woe is me and that person is racist or I just lost my job because they don't like black people or some, it's happened in these cuts of a thousand deaths or however you say it, where these little tiny cuts every day and you just die one day because you've been cut so many times. It happens in when some uh, white person wants to touch your hair without your permission. Or it happens when you someone asks you or says to you, oh, you're different. You're different. You're not like the others. Um, when you just speak the English language because you like the way it sounds out of the book. You know what I mean? Um These little things that happen to us every day is what creates the narrative. Um, Growing up as a female, uh, not seeing a little doll baby that looked like me really irritated me. When I can remember being irritated at six and seven and not having a doll baby that looked like me. Not the ones that look like the little pickaninnies. That that, that doesn't look like me. I don't want that. I want a pretty Barbie. I want a. I want a doll that's pretty, that that shows me something that I can aspire to. That that says that beauty is. This is beauty for for women, um, and there was none in that category that looked like me, which told me that I would never be beautiful. Not oh, you had to follow these steps to become beautiful that meant that I was never in this lifetime going to be beautiful in the in the land that I live in. And so it is those types of cuts that you kind of um, endure every day to get you to the point where you're like, because I used to I buck all the time that people would say, Ray, they just don't care. They don't care. And I would say, no, I just think that if you could just, express yourself in so many words and tell them exactly um, and I I really honestly have come to the conclusion that people don't care that's hard for me yeah that is hard for me And so I would say to to white people seriously if you really want to become woke go to your history books go and read that we came here as slaves, but we had an African-American president four years ago. Mm-hmm. Go to your history. And so see the beauty in it, because I try to tell my African-American children, seriously, see the beauty in it. Like the the middle passage where all of these slaves were in horrible conditions and they were dying in the whole of the strongest survive means that when they landed on this rock, only the strongest of the strongest survived that. Then the 400 years that they had to do, endure of this uh, never-really-seen-before type of slavery that was very psychological, yes, it was physically damning to the human race, but it was very psychologically Uh, warfare inclined and so not only did they endure that but they did and so that meant only the strongest of the strongest survived not only that they were bred like chattel which means that they wanted to breed the strongest with the strongest and so the strongest were produced so that means that we officially really have the strongest of the strongest of who we are in this land today and um so that's the the really positive glowing side of it but go back and look go back and read those accounts in the this city uh, archives that say sally was sold for you know 15 dollars or and Big Jim was sold for 750 My son saw something like that the other day. And he said, you know, Mom, everybody's always told me that, you know, we were cheap and inexpensive and we didn't matter and we didn't cost anything. He said, but that's a lot of money for back then. I said, exactly. I said, so you had to understand that it was a, a, about money. It was about money. So I can let people off the hook and say, you know what? We had to have an economy. They chose slavery in the South to, to be their economy. And so that part of it, to me, was about money. That's just greed. That is a very biblical thing that people have, and you can lose sight. Money is the root of all, you know. But as But if you want to know what that cost them, keep reading. Historically. Figure out what the African-American experience really is and was. And then go to your African-American friends and say, I was reading this. Yes. <clears throat> Fill me in.
0: Okay, good. Because that's what i w- that was the segue, <laughs> the translation that I wanted to make. Ray is being extremely gracious by answering our questions here and our responses. But this, if you're white and you're listening to this, this is an overwhelming response. Not only are they tired of... of being murdered, they're tired of explaining it to us. So when when Ray says, go read this or go research this, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you are speaking on behalf of, of many, many people who would say, please do your research. Oh, absolutely. Before, we're, we're not your Wikipedia. We're, we're human beings. We have feelings. We have life experiences. Go do your research. Find out the history for yourself, and then come back educated, mm-hmm. wiser, mm-hmm woker Mm -hmm. and ready to have a conversation. Am am I wrong in what I'm saying?
4: You're not wrong. That is absolutely the conversation that African Americans would like to have. Um, We grow up in schools where there's one or two of us in classrooms and just when they hit the slavery (laughs) issue in history, every, even the teachers, I know many people, my kids experienced this in Williamson County schools. When you get to that part, and they ask something, or some kid asks something about black people, and my kid is the only African-American kid in the class, and they turn and look to the kid to mm-hmm. say, okay, will you answer for that? And that's not okay. Yeah. It's not okay. Um, when I My most stark experience of that was when I went to college, and all of my other college roommates were um, Caucasian, and they began to really have a intervention with me because they were like, we have not seen you wash your hair. <laughs> and I was like, Oh my word. I think like, that's because we don't wash our hair every day. Cause that's not a thing. If I wash my hair every day, it'll dry up and fall out. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, Um, That's not every African-American's hair, but that's just mine. But I felt like I had done enough research to know that they had to wash their hair every day, that if they didn't, it would get greasier, things would change, and whatever. And I felt just disheartened that they knew that they were coming into a room with an African-American, and they just didn't care enough to do any research about it at all.
3: Yeah, I, I've heard that over and over again, too, where it's like we're tired of explaining. Do your research. And uh, for me, if you want to really, really open your eyes, uh, go anything that W.E.B. Dubois wrote. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it would be a good place to start. because He's the early 1900s, late 1800s, and he was a sociologist. And the work that he did um, just on African-American life is just unreal, especially if you think of the days before computers and all of that and his graphs, and his charts, and, and, uh, and everything, but even he got tired, right, mm-hmm. you know, he, was, mm-hmm. he helped found the NAACP, kept hoping things would get better in the country, it became as an older man, it's never going to change, so he moved out of the country, he revoked his citizenship, um, mainly because he was tired, mm-hmm. just tired, I've been fighting this battle, I've been trying to explain to all my white mm-hmm. friends what's <laughs> going on, it ain't working, um, I want to go live in peace and uh and that's you know that that's really the sad and, and from a christian perspective um the one thing that i just really can't understand is where um you know white supremacy or or just white privilege i mean where that even came from because you know um <laughs> the ancient hebrews weren't white right you know they're mm-hmm. middle they're middle eastern even the term middle eastern is uh is is yeah. ethnocentric i mean it's this not, it was Asia Minor. Correct. And uh, it w- wasn't us. I think it was more of a European thing after when they, they labeled that, well, the Far East is Japan, mm-hmm. halfway there is the Middle East. So the Middle East became, it's an Anglo-Saxon, not, not, it's a European designation. Sure. It's not really what they are. And that even shows how we're, we're going to rename your whole, <laughs> you know, we're going to rename your whole country, right? Uh, but so the ancient Hebrews were, were not white Europeans, um, Jesus was a, a person of color. Um, I had a, an encounter in a bank years ago where I tried to point that out to somebody who was um, saying something about all the towel heads need to go home, and I was like, "Well, you know, Jesus was a towel head. He didn't, he didn't like that too much." But uh, um, so he was a person of color, and then most everybody in the West form of Christianity, mm-hmm. which is where where we come from, uh, all of our uh, Christ, most of our Christianity in the United States, the key theologian was augustine mm-hmm. who was from north africa mm-hmm. you know and so the very basis of our faith as christians is found in in colored mm-hmm. people if mm-hmm. i can use that term mm-hmm. um, but yet somehow or another has gotten hijacked and so uh, jesus is a white european guy in all the paintings uh, most of those came out of the renaissance which you can explain it context wise but it's like but that's not what jesus looked like right you know he looked more like osama bin laden than he did me mm-hmm. Those kind of things. And then our key historians uh, or our key theologians are black, uh, but you go to most any uh, seminary and you're not going to read black theologians. Mm -hmm. You know, when it's like, well, this is the whole founding of our, but somehow or another over time, started in Europe basically, but over time this idea that Christianity was white
1: Mm
3: -hmm. um, just kind of came and has taken hold and we haven't, you know, we haven't let go of it. I mean, we... We have a hard time admitting that Timothy McVeigh claimed to be a Christian. Mm-hmm. And look what he did in the mm-hmm. name of Christ. Mm-hmm. We have a hard time. Even Adolf Hitler at the beginning claimed to be a Christian. And he used the church in Germany to get his agenda through, the white church in Germany to get his agenda through. Um, but, and then the greatest miracle of all miracles is that the, the slaves come through the middle passage and then they adapt they don't adopt it because they change it a little bit. Mm-hmm. They adapt the religion of their slaveholder,
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know, which is the, I don't know how that happens, <laughs> you know, uh, but but it did. And and then, but then we don't, you know, I was, it was when I got out of school, well, actually, no, was in, I was in graduate school the first time I was handed a, a, a James Cone book to read,
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know, and that's Black Liberation Theology, if you don't know who who that is? So I, that was the first time in my whole life, and I grew up in church, went to Christian school, Christian college, and and in graduate school, given this book, uh, first book by an African American um, that I read. So as you do your research, I guess this is what I'm saying: as you do your research, read African Americans, read their perspective of history, mm-hmm. um, not just uh, the textbooks and what we usually read. Read, read from um, you know uh, from the minorities what has been their experience. Uh, and uh, and and I would add to that even, you know, when it comes to Native American history, read mm-hmm. Native Americans. Oh, absolutely. And how they talk about uh, the history in the United States. Um, you know that we have to read uh, minority viewpoints if we want to have any understanding of what. If all you ever read is 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 authors of your own color, you're not really learning a whole lot.
4: So K squared, can I can I ask you guys <laughs> <K-squared>. to <laughs> say some things that? i really want white people who are listening to hear themselves so will you guys both say some things that you thought were true before you begin reading or before let those thoughts come out i just want them to permeate the airwaves to say this is where i was until i found truth
0: Mm -hmm. well the list i'll keep thinking of things but uh you know early on you say uh well, there's no racism in this world now or, um, uh, there systemically, there's not systemic issues. We all have the same opportunity today. Um, this is America. This is the American dream. E- everybody has the same opportunity. Um, even in myself of, um, Oh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not prejudiced or that, that phrase of, I don't see color.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> um, those things. And then you, then you realize, oh, wow, I'm, I'm having this reaction, or I, no, I'm, I've been raised in this, or I lived in this bubble. I mean, I, I'm married to a Native American woman. I lived on two reservations growing up, had no idea about any Native American issues until I married my wife. And, um, and so, yeah, those are just a few. If you want to jump in, I'm sure I'll, I'll think of more. But
3: uh, Yeah, I, I was thinking, more, more, I don't know. I want to say it was more deeper, but I was thinking more in lines, yeah, the, the one thing that's just not true is that we were founded to be a Christian nation. Yeah. That's just not true. We, our founding fathers may have been Christian, mm-hmm. but they used um, um, humanistic principles couched in, in Scripture mm-hmm. to, to come up with our, to form our government. And so, I, I, now I love the United States, don't get me wrong, but, uh, but, but you know, um, Native American issues. You know, and what's really strange in the South is in the South, growing up, <clears throat> there was almost a sense of pride if you could say you were, um, you know, my grandmother was full-blooded Cherokee,
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know, or, or you know, I, I've got this Native, and, and I can say that by myself, I, I don't think I have enough of the percentage to, to be qualified as Native mm-hmm. American, mm-hmm. But, but I know, okay, my background here, you know, my, gra- my grandmother on my dad's side was, was almost full-blooded, maybe, full, I can't remember exact, but, but she was, you know, Cherokee, and so I had, but it's almost growing up in the South, and I idolized Jim Thorpe. Did not even realize what he went through until I got older. You know, I read some sanitized autobiographies of Jim Thorpe, uh, but then as I got older, started reading those. Like this guy, it's incredible what he did and what he faced. You know, uh, from that. But unfortunately, in the South, uh, as a white person, no one would want to try to tie themselves um, to an African American ancestor. You know, but we want to we want to tie ourselves up. Hey, I've got a grandmother who is Native American, but we wouldn't want we wouldn't um, have said that as proudly if it would have been um, a person of color, and I apologize for that that's just the reality of uh of what it was but now, if you go out west then the the prejudice toward Native Americans is really 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 strong
1: mm-hmm.
3: you know um whereas here and and so and so outside of those other things, thinking that you know everybody's treated equal, uh you know looking back in my life i i uh you know God put me in some places um in in junior high, um, the schools were desegregated in, in Nashville, and um, the the junior high went to Bellevue Junior high school um, they split they basically at desegregation, they split the school up. You had the old Bellevue High School that looked like the Alamo um, and it was old, didn't have good heat, you know all that kind of stuff, and then they had portables. well during desegregation, all the white kids went to the portables all the black kids went into the building now because i played football or something like that i got sent to the building so i was like you know all of my friends were in the portables and i was in in the building mm-hmm. uh and i kind of saw it nowhere near saying i experienced it mm-hmm. but but i could see there was a lot of discrimination shown toward the people in the building you know the people in the portables were the smart kids the people in the building were the were the dumb the dumber kids mm-hmm. You know, and, and that and so I was able to see that I think at a at a young age, just starting to see, wait a minute, people aren't treated equally. There is something about um, you know, the the color of your skin. Um and, but then, you know, as you grow older you start to see it you start to see it more. Um, you know, that, that something's just not and again I've caught myself if a if a if a um if a black person is walking toward me back in my older days, I don't I not now but in the past, oh no, I'm going to get on the other side of the street. I'm going to lock my car door. Whereas if it was a white person, it, you know, it wouldn't have been, it it wouldn't have been any problem, mm-hmm. you know. But and I think some of that is just the racial the racialization that we all go through uh, from that. But I think one of the biggest things <laughs> I think I learned was, and our country is not as pristine, you know. Never thought it was perfect, mm-hmm. but it's just not as pristine as I as I thought it was, and then when you start traveling the world, you know, uh, I hope this, well, if it makes anybody mad, I mean, this is my podcast, I can do what I <laughs> want to do. Um, we, we might not have the violence that other countries have, but our government is as corrupt as any other government. I mean, it's just, that's just, that's just a fact, mm-hmm. uh, that's just a fact the way I see it, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, and so this idea um, that somehow or another we, you know, manifest destiny is a lie, just straight out, it's a lie. You cannot be a Christian country and do what we did uh, to people. You just can't. Mm-hmm. And even to this day, it's my understanding that there are some states, and I think Georgia may be one of them, where the Constitution, the state Constitution still says African Americans are three fifths people. Mm-hmm. Now, there's been amendments that have tried to make it more equal, but no one has ever gone back and said, mm-hmm. that was wrong.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Let's take that out of the Constitution. Mm-hmm. You know, it's still in the Constitution. And as I said, I think on one of our other podcasts, Nate, the uh, Bureau of Indian Affairs in 2020, the Bureau of Indian Affairs is in the Department of Interior in the United States. And so they're just natural resources. Mm-hmm. They're not humans. They're just natural resources. It's, you know, you got Yellowstone National Park mm-hmm. and you got Native Americans. They're all under, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, uh, and that's today. And so that's what we mean by the systemic level, uh, that all this stuff is still rooted in this uh, systemic level, and then we whitewash it. Um, and that that term may be used purposely, <laughs> but but it's historically black colleges and universities, mm-hmm. and and we just kind of rush over the fact. Well, why are they historically black colleges and universities? Mm-hmm. Well, because they weren't allowed to go to the white colleges. Mm-hmm. You know, so I'm thankful that they're getting the recognition and they they can get um, government funding and all that. But don't just rush past the reason they're historically black is because. They couldn't go to the universities. They had to start their own universities, you know, from that. And uh, one thing I learned, in, because I went to a Christian school, um, graduated from. A, I went to public schools, but I graduated from a Christian school. And in the 1970s, there was this huge move in white, conservative, evangelical churches to start Christian schools in their churches.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: And it wasn't to educate their kids. It was, they've desegregated schools. We don't want our kids going to school with black people, so let's start our own schools in our churches. Now, today, that may not be the case with those schools, but that's where they started. Mm -hmm. And so now our governor wants to give vouchers and basically pay for the schools that were started Mm -hmm. because of racism. You know, so take money from the public schools and give it to the Christian schools. Now, there's a lot of private schools that were started way earlier than that. But mm-hmm. but a lot of the Christian schools started in this. You can look. you can look, Tons of Christian schools across the South started in the 70s in churches, and it was because of desegregation. Um, and so this is not ancient history. Um, slavery was not that long ago. I mean, in world history, 150, 170 years is not that long. And then that's just slavery. You Forget about Jim Crow, which wasn't over, some people say <laughs> still not over, yeah. <laughs> but wasn't over until the 1920s or so, and then it was the 1960s when you had the civil rights movement. Now, mm-hmm. the bright thing is in the United States, in in our horrible history, mm-hmm. an African American was able to go from slavery to the president mm-hmm. presidency. Mm-hmm. That has never, as far as I know, England has never had a person of color Correct. as prime minister. Australia has never had a person of color. Germany has never had a person of color. Um, in any type of high-level mm-hmm. political. So we, so we can take pride in that, mm-hmm. that we were able as a country to at least admit on some level we have a problem mm-hmm. and an and, and a African-American goes from slavery to the presidency. Mm-hmm. But it seems like after that, we've reverted back. It seems like after Obama's presidency, we've gone back to the 60s, if not the 20s, mm-hmm. as far as our attitudes toward race. We are not post-racial, which everybody thought we would be. Mm-hmm. With that, we, After had, that. Mm-hmm. we have reverted back and and have become emboldened. We got to take our country back, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and
4: and that's that's the language that is so super offensive to say. From what that right. that's that is the what are you taking it back from, and what are you taking it back to? Because no matter what the answer to that question is for you. No one is going backwards. No one. There's going to be a fight to the death. No one is going backwards. Yeah. And so um, I just, there's just a couple things that I just want to finally say that um, for, for white people who feel like uh, we all have the same chance to be successful in the United States of America today, You are not living your truth. You are living a more comfortable lie. And if you mistake that comfort for righteousness, you are going to be in trouble. There is nothing righteous about not acknowledging truth.
3: That's good. That may be a good place to stop. Yeah. (laughs) I
0: mean, it's a great comment to sit. Like, that silence is as powerful let that soak in i mean this is a conversation that needs to go on and on and on this week we can't just cover this all in an in an hour podcast so i mean there's there's so much more i would love to to talk about but i know you know this is just one podcast but if you would be willing to come back we would love to to continue this um okay um you know i don't know I don't want to open a can of worms necessarily on the statement, but just talking solutions. And you, you talked about people getting pushed to a level where there's going to have to be a response. And hopefully it's not a violent one. But I just wonder, you know, in history, and both of you are far more educated than I, so this is the question out to you. Do you know of any, any society in history that has, has, one, done it well, done racial reconciliation well, had a history of this and worked through it to a productive a cohesive, peaceful society. Um, and for America, like, the, here was a, this is just from a, from a document from a group, uh, Be the Bridge, uh, but they reference in the Bible here in, in Revelation 7, 9, it says, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And in that scripture, their point is, is that it's not, heaven and the kingdom of God is not a homogenized, we're all the same, it's every tribe there is there is diversity and there is beauty in that diversity. And so in, in America, specifically here, our goal is not to not see color. Mm-hmm. The goal is, is how do we achieve reconciliation and peace? And if if there were a another civil war, could there could there be a nonviolent civil war? Like is it gonna take a, a war of some of some kind, whether it's a a spiritual war, a battle, whether it's in education, whether it's in reconciliation like what is that war is it going to take that, or is there some other solution that before it you know peaks to the point of that where we can we can find a resolution in this country do you do you think there is a solution we've kind of talked some you know some some slow baby step ideas, but I'm not a patient person, you know? <laughs> so I'm like, how do, we, how, do we, how do we fix this effectively as quick as possible before more and more people get hurt in this? What are, what are your kind of
3: closing thoughts on, on how we can boldly step forward? Well, I, that, I mean, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know if there's been a – the United States is unique in that um, the slavery was based on race. You know, there's been slavery all over the world and even more slavery today than mm-hmm. any time in history. Mm-hmm. Um, but but the United States is, is the, really the only country that the institution of slavery was based on the color of a person's skin. Mm-hmm. Across the world, it was based on ethnic issues. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you have ethnic cleansing, which is violent, mm-hmm. you know, but you've got like in, uh, in, in uh, the Middle East, you have the, the Kurds. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then that's Northern Iraq, mm-hmm. but it's Kurdistan was the old country name, um, and then you have uh, the Iraqis, and um, and the prejudice um, and the violence that has been um, displayed both ways is based entirely on on ethnicity and so slavery and so you would have in the continent of Africa you would have Africans who had other Africans that were slaves because mm-hmm. it would be a tribal warfare like mm-hmm. I, I conquered your village now everybody in that village becomes our slaves. Mm-hmm. So you had that slavery but it was but it was it was ethnic it mm-hmm. was based on culture more than it was color to skin and so i don't know if you can point to a country that has had um one maybe australia because of the aborigines but but that's that's still not healed you can't you know south africa tried it with apartheid but it's mm-hmm. still you know it's still not um not there um the way uh, the way that we are uh, mm-hmm. you know but because of that, because it, because our slavery was based on a person's skin color, um, that that just puts it in a different level that really history hasn't seen. So we're the yeah we're the, the ones experiment we're, we're the great
4: experiment
3: yeah we're <laughs> the ones that it, now, you know I could suggest a couple of books uh, you know the first two books that come to mind was really funny is White Fragility and uh, White Awake um, White Fragility is a secular book White Awake is a Christian book but they were both written by white people mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but then you got the Color of Compromise um, ah, the guy's name is just gone mm-hmm. Color of Compromise is excellent, and that's an African-American writer, and he traces really how Christianity has been complicit in racism from the very beginning, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's an eye-opening book, Color of Compromise. Um, James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree would be the one. I'm afraid if people read James Cone, the first book they read is Black Liberation Theology. They throw it out the window and not listen to what he has to say, but The Cross and the Lynching Tree uh, with one of his later books, and be a good one to start with as far as educating yourself. And then again, just find anything about W. E. B. Du Bois, but be careful doing an internet research on him because, from a white history, he's a bad guy. And so you got to, you know, you got to filter through all that and find out what this guy was really, really trying to do. I mean, there would be no Martin Luther King Jr. if there wasn't a W. W.E.B. Du Bois. That's just a basic uh, fact. But uh, how we get there from here? I, <laughs> I don't know. It it starts with conversations, but I'm kind of like I'm kind of like Ray. After 25 years of conversation, it's like (laughs) I'm 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 tired.
4: And I think the first thing that we have to do as a country is um, call a truce, end the war on poverty, end the war on um, people of color. In the work, call it out by name and put a peace sign on it. After you do that, then there needs to be some very specific justice related issues taken care of. Change the laws. Go back and revisit how the laws are disproportionately affecting people of color, period. So those are to, to me two things and P, peace being the presence of justice to me sums it up to say we, it's not really the absence of those wars. Those wars go away. It's not the absence of them. But it is the presence of the justice that must follow and then and only then things, I think, become more peaceful.
0: Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Thank you. Thank you, Ray, for joining us on this. Thank you, guys, Thank for you having Kevin. me. Thank you. And for those of you listening at home, I hope this was uh, enlightening and, and begins a journey or continues a journey for, uh, for all of you at home. We'll see you on the next episode. The Floods of Justice podcast looks at the issues of our day from a biblical perspective without the labels. Join the conversation online at floodsofjustice.com or find the Reverend Dr. Kevin Riggs on Twitter at Riggs underscore Kevin.